Thanks for tuning into this episode of CannaCast. I'm your host, Eric Allstadter, Eisner Amper's National Cannabis and Hemp Practice Leader. Please welcome my guest, Caitlin Kastetter, Managing Director of Kastetter Cannabis Group. The Kastetter Cannabis Group helps cannabis businesses with government relations, regulatory and strategic analysis, adult use application writing, and business planning. Caitlin is also a member of the Cannabis and Hemp Networking Association of New York, a group I am also a member of. Welcome, Kalen. Thanks for having me. Excited. Thanks, Kalen. Let's get right into New York State. How many different licenses are available in New York State? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, right now there's only two uh, essentially classes of licensure. One is on the production side, and that includes a processor license and a cultivator license. And the other one is on the retail side, and that's the card license. Now, Neither of them are actually available, right? Those are conditional licenses, meaning you had to meet a certain amount of conditions in order to receive them. So the first two licenses I mentioned, the the cultivation license and the processing license, you had to have already been a licensed grower or processor for hemp in the state of New York in order to get them. That was opened uh, last year and then closed. And then with CARD, there's a couple of different ways you could qualify. One was if you had a conviction, a cannabis conviction in the state of New York, or you uh, worked as a nonprofit with those type of individuals called just involved individuals, and you had to have been operating a profitable business. That application window opened last year, the end of the summer, early fall, and that also closed. So right now there's no licenses available. When they open up the general um, application round, there'll be nine licenses available. And what are those nine? Can you just tell everyone what those nine would be? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's uh, nursery, cultivation, processing, distributor, retail, dispensary, on-site consumption, delivery, and then also the, the card and the AUCC and AUCPs. And how does this differ from other states and what other states have done? Well, definitely giving the first 280 some production licenses to the hemp industry or, or participants in the hemp industry is definitely something that has never been done before. And on the retail side, no state has also decided to only give retail licenses to those who have a conviction uh, for cannabis. And the reason they did that is because the state essentially made a policy that said that they you know, harmed uh, individuals and communities by prohibiting cannabis for so long and that those individuals and communities should be first to be essentially the harm should be repaired for, for those individuals. Now you talked about card licenses, which again are conditional adult use retail dispensary licenses. And currently there's a lawsuit going on that's preventing the opening of new dispensaries. Was that lawsuit unexpected, and how do you think this will ultimately resolve itself? Yeah, I mean, unexpected. I don't, I don't think it was unexpected for most people, most legal observers, right, or even the state of New York. The fact of the matter is that most social equity programs are litigated, um, but this one had definitely some vulnerabilities. Uh, this is actually the third lawsuit uh, that has been brought against the program, the first one being settled, Verisite case challenges uh, constitutionality, of dormant commerce clause, right? And now uh, this this current one, which is actually enjoined all licensing surrounding card in the state of New York, this is uh, basically, there's a portion of the law that says all applications need to open at the same time. They didn't do that, uh, you know, as, as we've already discussed. And, and so now they're defending that from the lawsuit. So not unexpected at all. And uh, how it will resolve itself, it's unclear. The judge has made it pretty clear that uh, he finds the program most likely 
to be illegal. And so right now there's about 260 some odd license holders, provisional license holders, who are in a state of limbo and don't really know how they can advance their, their license to a full licensure. So as of today, who can sell THC products in New York State? Well, there's 22 licensed retailers in the state of New York. Not all of them are licensed as a retail dispensary, thing like a brick and mortar. I think there's like four of them who are just temporary delivery only. So they're just operating a delivery business out of um, a a non-storefront retail, uh, essentially. So it's pretty small. Um, It's a pretty small amount of license holders. Now, there is, like I said, close to 400 some odd uh, licenses on the retail side, on the retail dispensary side. They uh, cannot move forward with licensure, meaning that they have this provisional license uh, that says that if they met certain requirements that they can get a full licensure, but the judge should, uh, has not allowed them to move forward, or not allowed the OCM to continue processing those applications, why the case plays itself out. So those licenses ultimately may be invalidated, um, but there's no path for them to actually get a full licensure and be able to sell THC products in New York. New York State currently has no license cap, meaning that there's no limit to the number of licenses that can be issued. How different is that from other states, particularly those in close proximity to New York? Do you think this is a good approach or one that needs to change? Well, I think it's important to note that while there's no written license cap, the way they've already operated has capped licenses, right? There's only a certain amount of people who could qualify for a card license, a retail license, and then they only issued a small amount of them every month at a board meeting, right? So, you know, while there is no cap, there is the ability for the state to, you know, make an application window a finite amount of time. So if you didn't apply within that window, you wouldn't be able to afterwards. And they also have an ability to approve or reject based on, you know, how that license holder may affect the general market. So if they've already issued a lot of them. So there's a lot of tools for the regulator to, in essence, cap these licenses, but they're not coming out and saying, we're going to give a hundred retail licenses and the top scores are going to do so. We've seen that in a lot of other states, um, not necessarily neighboring states, like New Jersey doesn't have a cap um, and Massachusetts doesn't either. Pennsylvania does for their medical program. But, you know, there's a lot of issues with those programs, including, you know, basically those who can spend the most amount of money in the application process are usually the winners. And that's not good for the consumer always, and definitely not good for the ability for smaller businesses and uh, entrepreneurs such as that to to succeed or even enter the market. New York State has a two-tier market structure. Can you explain what that is and why it was put into place? Yeah, so the two-tier market structure is similar to what you would call a three-tier market structure, regulatory structure for the marketplace in alcohol, right? So essentially what it means in New York, they they have a two-tier market with an asterisk, and I'll explain the asterisk in a second, but what it means in New York is that they separate the licenses into supply tier and retail tier, right? So on the supply tier, you can grow process, distribute, but you cannot have any interest in a retail license, right? And vice versa. So essentially they're saying that you can pick one side of the fence to the other, but you cannot collaborate on the other side. You cannot have a business interest and you cannot vertically integrate your business. Now the asterisk comes into play because they've issued 10 licenses to medical companies who are able to be vertically integrated and are able to have ownership in some of the largest cultivation and retail. 
So it's not really a two-tier market. It's a two-tier market for most, but not all. And importantly, the small amount that are able to be vertically integrated also happen to be some of the largest cannabis companies in the world. So it's a little bizarre. Now, the, the other asterisk actually I should mention too is that there's a micro business license. And I think I forgot that when I was ex explaining the, the different licenses. That can be vertically integrated, but there's a cap on the amount of cannabis you can grow and you must so sell your own products. Now, we talked about New York State. We talked a little bit about a card license. Forgetting about what happens with the ongoing lawsuit litigation, what's next for a cardholder? Do they need to get? Do they need to obtain a different license? Well, so the lawsuit notwithstanding, what would happen is if you had gotten your provisional card licensee, a card license, you would then need to convert it through the post-secondary license application, which is really actually a more significant application than the than the initial one to get you the license. Um, there's a lot of things you have to do, including getting insurance and disclosing all of your owners, right? So in New York State, you have to disclose your ownership all the way that it pierces the corporate veil and all the way to, you know, one share, essentially, if you have any ownership at all. Or even debt, you have to disclose who those who those people are who might own the fund or or that company that that owns the shares. So you know you have to go through all those disclosures. You have to secure a site. You have to then have a site plan approved, uh, essentially, meaning you have to install security cameras and build the space out to spec and show that to the state. This process is is pretty complex. We've actually handled close to 40% of such um, post-secondary license application process for uh, retailers in New York. Um, and it takes time. It can take uh, uh, several months, potentially. You mentioned in, the, in your response about alcohol. Are alcohol regulations a starting point for cannabis regulations? Well, in New York, I think what happened was is the cannabis law was modeled in a lot of ways after the alcohol beverage and control law. Specifically, when we talk about the tiers, separating the tiers and ownership there, the micro business license where you can be vertically integrated, but you can't be you know, larger than a certain size for your cultivation footprint. There's an uh, analogous license type or license types in alcohol in New York State. So in that way, I think so. However, New York State, while they talk about modeling after the alcohol law many times, they've gone way above and beyond when it comes to packaging, marketing, labeling, advertising, and their regulations are very strict. Um, some of the strictest we've seen in the country actually, in terms of what you can market, what you can put on your, your label, your packaging, where you can market your product. Um, we don't see those regulations in alcohol at all. Access in alcohol is also very significant. You can get alcohol in tens of thousands of um, locations throughout the state of New York, including on-premise at restaurants and bars. So New York State has a long way to go to model if they want to actually model off, off alcohol. And that first comes with respecting that the consumer wants to be you know, met with with cannabis in a form factor that they enjoy at the place where they enjoy it, right? And so limiting all these places where you can buy cannabis, 22 in New York State, 22. I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's absurd. It's laughable. There's 20, 20 million odd people. So, you know, we need to get to that point. And I think that, that there needs to be a, a, a seismic change in the way the regulators think about this marketplace. But on one hand, they say we are, you know, legalizing cannabis. They're promoting cannabis production and, and New York cannabis over the illicit market. But then you're saying that we need to keep it from people. And we know best, you know, right now we're battling a lobbyist and, and we do well, lobbying on behalf of the almost the entire industry. There's a flavor ban that's going to go in effect on vapes that could take up to 30% of all vapes on the market out. Why? Because they feel like adults shouldn't be able to choose 
the flavor of vapor, the, the aromatic profiles in vapes. It's absurd, right? The, it, the list is like dessert. What is dessert flavor, right? Concept flavors. So they've gone way overboard and they would be helped in the marketplace would be helped tremendously if they moved closer to um, the alcohol as a framework. Let's shift gears for a second. How hard is it to raise capital in this industry these days? It's very hard, right? I mean, one major issue and, and, and a news event that we saw recently is the rescheduling of cannabis. Right now, as it stands, and, and Eric, I'm sure you've talked about this a lot on, on, on the podcast, but 280E makes it so you cannot take standard deductions, right, um, off taxes. And so the, effect, the effective tax rate for some operators are up to 70%. It really blows profitability out the window when you also layer on all these compliance costs, right? And just risk in general with cannabis companies failing across the country. So capital is in very short supply. Institutional groups are also not part of these capital markets. And so you're really looking at non-traditional lenders. So you're looking at essentially hard money loans when you, when it comes to financing and that, right? Interest rates anywhere from 15 to 25%. Um, and, you know, also for equity, it's a very limited pool of investors. Do you see with your clients more debt these days as opposed to equity? Yeah, absolutely. I think even when there is equity investments, it's usually paired with debt. People with capital and, and firms with capital who are deploying into the space have seen a lot of their investments go by the wayside. And so they are evaluated that risk in adding on premium. And that is one way for them to mitigate some of the risk for them. So yeah, I think it, it's that is almost in every single investment conversation that I've seen. Now, now you, you also mentioned the recent decision or the recent, I guess, suggestion about rescheduling cannabis. And that's pretty new. That's just recent recent current events. Can you explain a little bit more about that to the group? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see. So essentially, the uh, Department of Health and Human Services at, at the federal level has decided that they are recommending cannabis to move from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. Now, what's important on the tax side is that Section 280E of the Internal Revenue Code specifically lists Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 drugs as not and people who traffic in such as not being able to take deductions. Those on the schedule three are not uh, beholden to to that that you know so 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 that so 280E, so this idea of not being able to take deductions will go away there. They could also mean a lot of other things in terms of essentially ushering in a new regulatory schema from the FDA, because the FDA does regulate schedule three drugs. So that will be interesting. I think there's some risk there for the industry as well, as the FDA has continued to show that they're really only interested in single molecule compounds and specifically the new drug approval pathway, which is, you know, essentially a pharmaceutical track. And right now we, especially here in New York, kind of exist more in the supplement realm. So so it'll be interesting to see. Now the DEA also so it doesn't have to take the recommendation of HHS, right? They could decide that they, you know, well, thank you, but we're actually going to go to schedule two or leave you right at schedule one. We'll see. I mean, they're all part of the same administration. So you'd think that if Health and Human Services decides to make a recommendation that the DA is going to fall along with that. But it's definitely good news. It's a step in the right direction. Um, it's not legalization at the federal level, but it, it is, like I said, a step in the right direction. And how long do you think it'll take before the next step in this in this process 
gets taken. I think by the end of the year, well, at least we'll have clarity on what is what is happening, what the DEA decides to do. Um, and but it's going to be years before we really see the ramifications of this in terms of uh, FDA oversight. So we talked a little bit about alcohol. Recently, Tilray purchased a number of craft beers. Is this a normal progression for an MSO in the cannabis industry? I think in the case of Tilray, I think it's a pivot, right? Um, I think that they're looking their cannabis investments and brands are not really been successful at all. Their stock prices has, has, you know, really taken a hit. But the, so what they did is they did purchase a good amount of craft beer brands, as you mentioned. And I really think that's for cash flow to show, you know, revenue coming in the door. And um, I, they like that marketplace. In terms of the similarities between craft beverage and cannabis, I think there's a significant amount, right? They're both CPG products, right? Consumer packaged goods. They're both consumed, I think, in similar settings. Consumer behavior can be somewhat similar. The trends that we've seen in craft beverage, whether it's hard seltzer, ciders, craft beer, explosion of you know craft beer brands and whatnot, and, and different line extensions and all this, and, and small breweries and distilleries and wineries and being destinations, and all these things I think have similar, are similar to where we could see the cannabis industry going. So, you know, as a company, Right. If you're already deploying some of these strategies in cannabis, it could make sense to go to, to alcohol. But it's very different. It's not the same business at all. There's different regulatory. I, I don't know. You know what Tilray's plan is probably to build a portfolio of brands, uh, cannabis brands, beverage brands, etc. You know, we did see Constellation Brands, the one of the largest alcohol companies in the entire world, which is actually, by the way, based in upstate New York, based in Rochester. They did enter the cannabis space with the purchase of Canopy Growth, which they've written down at close to a billion, or maybe over a billion dollars worth of their investment in it. So it's really not worked out for them. But, you know, it definitely people in the alcohol industry are, are seeing similarities and opportunity in, in cannabis. Caitlin, I'm glad we're speaking to you this month because there's so much that's happened lately in the cannabis industry. One of the things also is the recent decision by MasterCard to kind of depart from the debit card industry as it, as it relates to cannabis. How has that affected the industry? Well, you know, I think it's it's really disappointing. Um, it's another uh, way that it costs dispensaries more money. It makes it more difficult for consumers to purchase cannabis. Yeah, there, there's really no reason for it either. It's an about face. I mean, MasterCard's policy has always been that they don't accept cannabis transactions on their network, but they have tolerated it, essentially. They've looked the other way, and, and now they're not. And so, you know, we've been seeing the amount of declines, you know, increase, but not just a MasterCard issue. I mean, banks also are you know declining some ACH transactions uh, across the board, especially small regional banks. I think the reality is that the, the banks do not know how to perform KYC when it comes to cannabis, and they're risk adverse. A lot of these banks, especially smaller banks, are risk adverse by nature, and so they they're very worried about about banking and processing transactions. And I think this is just another hurdle. Uh, you know, fortunate here in New York to represent Dutchie, uh, which is the largest point of sale provider in in the country for for cannabis, and so have some experience firsthand in kind of seeing how this affected it. And you know, definitely interested over the next year or so how you know ourselves and Dutchie and their entire GR team are going to look at you know making a a, a better regulatory environment for transactions happening at the, at the retail level. Galen, my final question, and one I ask a lot of my guests, and I get a wide array of answers. Do you expect federal legalization? And if you do, when? I, guess, I mean, it's inevitable, right? You, you can't have a product that's you know doing the type of commerce in the amount of states that you have without the federal government 
regulating it, right? So we talk about legalization, we're really talking about regulation, right? Because you know, right now the, the federal government doesn't regulate it. It's illegal to cross state lines. They could enforce the law, and you know, everyone who's participating in the cannabis industry is violating federal law, obviously. So they have to do something. Now we're in a period of one of the most dis- dysfunctional periods in American democracy in our in the history of our country. And so to ask something like, you know, is cannabis legalization going to get done soon? It's impossible to know, and probably not because nothing is getting done, right? When we're talking about two or three pieces of legislation that pass in the U.S. Congress every year, two or three. So, you know, obviously these are very large pieces of legislation, you know, appropriations, defense, the farm bill has to be passed at, at some point here. So there will be policies that are attached to these larger omnibus bills that do get us, I think, closer to legalization. But I mean, if we're talking about the amount of work and restructuring that's going to have to happen at the federal level in order to regulate this industry is significant. And there's also a state's rights concern and issue there, right, where states have developed very unique marketplaces, right? And are those left alone with federal legalization? I think that would be a very interesting question. And I also think, too, and this is very important to note, is that let's say Congress goes back next year and they do pass a bill that legalizes cannabis. We would be years years away from a regulatory rollout of such, right? The rulemaking process at the federal level takes years, potentially. So I think I think that's important to know. Well, thanks for joining me today, Kaylin, and thanks for listening to Canacast as part of the Eisner Amper podcast series. Visit www.eisneramper.com slash cannabis for more information and podcasts. Also, please visit www.castetter, C-A-S-T-E-T-T-E-R, Co. for more information about the Castetter Cannabis Group in Kalen. And join us for our next Canacast podcast. We'll discuss other budding issues. Thank you.